Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Look, so, you want some water, huh? Well, I've got a big can of it right here. It's up to me to decide if you get water or not. I control your fate. Your very lives are in my hands. Without me, you're as good as dead. Without me, you don't need... Yes, for those of you listening at home, it starts to rain in the last panel. Bill Watterson, the creator of the comic strip, he comments on this. It's just a brief comment. He says, the illusion of control. Calvin here is tapping into a very deep impulse that I think we have. He has life-giving water, which the plants need. He is trying unsuccessfully to play God. Water in the ancient world is much like it is today. It is a source of life, but also it is hard to control. The biblical writers picked up on this, noting that the water provided life, but it could also represent the forces of chaos. We see both of those image in the script both of those images in the scriptures. If you can control something like say a mighty river, then you are powerful indeed. Egypt, of course, has what? The Nile, right. And we have, in America, what do we have? The mighty Mississippi. Here is an excerpt from a Washington Post article about the Mississippi and our efforts to control it. Quote, The upper Mississippi is a string of slack water pools held by dams with water so placid that water skiing was invented there in 1922. The middle portion is a mishmash of wing dikes and arched chevrons, uh, man-made structures to train the river. Here it is artificially narrowed, only half as wide in St. Louis as it was in the early 1800s. The truly fearsome Mississippi doesn't start until the confluence with the Ohio River at Cairo, Illinois. Because you got, you got Cairo, you've got Memphis, right? You've got Alexandria. You know, we get, we get a lot of our geography from Egypt. Anyway, where the water emerges like a monster on par with the Amazon or Congo rivers. The Mississippi then runs to the Gulf of Mexico, hidden behind an extensive levee system built after the Great Flood of 1927. Who remembers that one? Eric, do you remember? No? All right. <laughs> A disaster that displaced 1% of the the country's population as levees fell like toppled dominoes. That flood's legacy still guides how the river is controlled today. The Army Corps of Engineers oversees most of the river's infrastructure and runs it with a battle general's intent. It is the Corps that operates the locks and dams that built the levee system in the lower Mississippi. It maintains the tools used to control the water levels throughout and regulates levees farther north. But a growing number of critics say the Corps' flood-fighting efforts make flooding worse. It's like fighting the moon, says Robert Chris, a 
hydrogeologist at Washington University in St. Louis who studies the river running just a few miles from his office door. It's stupid to fight, he says, and it can look like a losing battle, unquote. So why am I talking about controlling rivers? Because that's what this week's Haftarah portion deals with. Surprise, surprise. The portion from Ezekiel 28 and 29 is mostly a warning to Egypt and to Pharaoh. Even though Ezekiel lived during the time of the exile, it was well after the Exodus story, it seems that uh, Egypt and Pharaoh really haven't learned all that much since, since then, right? They kind of have the same problems. Egypt was a, kind of a constant enemy of uh, the biblical Israel, and the Pharaoh during Ezekiel's time still apparently had much the same flaws as the Pharaoh who stood against Moses, even though it was many years later. So, you know, biblical prophecy kind of goes in a cycle, kind of repeats itself, right? So here is the beginning of, of chapter 29. On the twelfth day of the tenth month of the tenth year, the word of Adonai came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says Adonai Elohim. Let's read this part together. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great crocodile lying in his rivers, who says, My Nile is my own. I made it. For myself. Sounds a little like uh, our friend Calvin from the beginning, right? The controller of the water, the mighty Nile, or, you know, maybe the mighty Mississippi. In this case, the Pharaoh thinks himself the creator of the Nile. But what does this mean? Well, in Egyptian thought, the Nile was the source of life. The, the yearly flooding uh, provided food and, and nutrients for all of Egypt. And a lot of their myths centered around the control of the Nile. For Pharaoh to say that he created the Nile means that he is a force stronger than life, stronger than chaos, that he can control the gods. That's what he is saying. In biblical and rabbinic thought, the Egypt, uh, Egypt and, and the Nile are, are linked together. Many rabbis connect the Nile to one of the four rivers in the Garden of Eden. They imagine that the, perhaps even the tree of life itself came from the Nile, was connected to the Nile. At the same time, Israel was to separate from Egypt and the Nile and not rely on her waters or her armies for protection. So there's to be kind of a separation there. This is how Isaiah uh, puts it in chapter 30. Oi, the rebellious children, it is a declaration of Adonai who carry out a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my Ruach, so they may add sin to sin, who go down to Egypt, but do not consult me, to take refuge in Pharaoh's stronghold, to seek shelter in Egypt's shadow. Therefore, Pharaoh's stronghold will become your shame and the shelter in Egypt's shadow will become your disgrace. In Scripture, the God of Israel is sovereign over the nation of Egypt and over the powers of the water. Whether they are powers of life or whether they are powers of chaos, the Lord is over both of those. Amen? Yeah. 
So the children of Jacob are to rely on Hashem, to rely on the Lord, not on these other so-called mighty powers or, you know, Pharaoh or, or, or Egypt. But they did. They, they usually relied on their army and things like that. So this is the Lord trying to get them to rely on him. The way of Pharaoh is the way of control. Pharaoh thinks that he is a god. He thinks he's in control. He's like Calvin, right? He's the creator of the Nile. He's the source of life and death in his eyes. We look at this scripture aghast, right? We're like, well, that's, that's terrible. How could someone be so proud and arrogant? But you know what? I think many times we do the same thing. Especially when we're anxious, we try to control the situation, don't we? Or we try to control others. We manipulate. We finagle, right? We think of ourselves as the chess master. Oh, I've got all of this under control. The situation is under control, right? But, you know, is that really the biblical way we're supposed to think about it? We think, uh, how can I get this particular result from someone else? How can I get what I need from someone else? Isn't this the same as what Pharaoh is thinking? Isn't this like ancient Israel relying on the power of Egypt? It's the same thing. And so we make ourselves into little gods, and that is pride. That's arrogance. We don't like feeling like we're not in control, so what do we do? We grasp at power. But on the other hand, aren't we supposed to be like God? If yes, then how? What does that mean? You know, in previous sermons, we've learned how to be a gardener, how to be a fisherman. Last week, we even learned how to be a tree. So how are we to be like God? Well, you see, I believe that there are two ways to go about this, as far as I can see from the Torah. One way, as we've seen, is to grasp at power, like grasping the fruit of that tree enables us to have power over what is good and what is evil, grasping at control, thinking we are kings over the mighty rivers of life. And the other way to be like God is to image his character in humility, to garden the earth, to care for others made in the image of God, to be fruitful and multiply his love and his ways to serve, to guard. The Talmud in Sota 14a puts it this way. This is the rabbis grappling with this idea. And Rabbi Chama, son of Rabbi Hanina, says, what is the meaning of that which is written, after the Lord your God shall you walk, and him shall you fear, and his commandment shall you keep, and unto his voice shall you hearken, and him shall you serve, and unto him shall you cleave? But is it actually possible for a person to follow the divine presence? But hasn't it already been stated, for the Lord your God is a devouring fire, a jealous God, and one cannot approach fire? So how can we be like God? How can we follow after him? He explains, rather the meaning is that one should follow the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be he. He provides several examples. Just as he clothes the naked, as it is written, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
so too should you clothe the naked. Just as the Holy One, blessed be he, visits the sick, as it is written with regard to God's appearing to Abraham following his circumcision, and the Lord appeared to him by the terebinths of Mamre, so you too should visit the sick. Just as the Holy One, blessed be he, consoles mourners, as it is written, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed Isaac, his son, so too you should console mourners. Just as the Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, as it is written, and he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab, referring, I believe, to Moses, so too should you bury the dead. Right? Do you see, do you see the pattern here? We're to be like God in his character, in the way that he is a blessing, that he, he blesses his children. So we are to be like God in this way. Let's take some time this Shabbat to ask Hashem, Lord, in what way can I be conformed more to your image? In what way can I show your kindness and your love in some small measure of how you show kindness and love to me? You know, God's love does not discriminate. God's image is holy and good, and we are from that very image. Amen? You know, in Messianic Judaism, we talk a lot about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the reality is that God is the Lord of the Jewish people and the nations. One way we can be like God is to reflect his love and kindness to all nations, especially if we are Messianic Jews. There's a really nice pair of compassionate statements in the Haftarah. They, they both involve an ingathering of people so that they will know who God is. Here is the first group of people. This is from the beginning of the Parsha in Ezekiel 28, verses 25 and 26. Thus says Adonai Elohim, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and show my holiness through them in the eyes of the nations, then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live safely there, they will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live securely when I have executed judgments on all those around them that treated them with contempt so that they will know that I am Adonai, their God. He wants Israel to know that he is Hashem. But there's another group in this very Parsha, a little bit further down. Who do you think that other group is that he wants to ingather so that they will know that he is the Lord. Who, who is it? Let's check it out. This is from Ezekiel 29, verses 13 through 16. Same portion. For thus says Adonai Elohim, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples where they were scattered. Sounds familiar, right? It's the same, same words. I will restore the fortunes of Egypt. I will cause them to return to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, but they will be a lowly kingdom there. It will be the lowliest of kingdoms. It will no longer exalt itself above the nations. I will diminish them so they will no longer rule over the nations. It will no longer be as a security for the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their turning after them, so they will know that I am Adonai. You see, all the themes that we've been talking about, they converge in this part. God wants to reveal himself even to Egypt, 
they will know that he is God. They'll be humbled. Yes, they'll know that they don't control the Nile, that they're not, you know, all that in a bag of chips, right? And, and that's so partially so that Israel doesn't rely on them as well, right? It says that. Egypt will know Adonai. They will be humbled, restored, and they will know the redemption of God because he does what? He ingathers, right? He gathers his children to him, right? Egypt is often a stand-in for the other nations. It's a mighty power that God longs to bring under the wings of his protection, as he does for all nations. This idea appears in the Torah story as well, the first exodus that we're reading through. This idea, uh, the Torah says that God is doing these mighty acts, not just so that Israel will know the redemption of God, but so that Pharaoh will know, so that Egypt will know Hashem. And not surprisingly, there's evidence that this occurred. There were some Egyptians that came to respect, to have awe, and to know Hashem, like the Egyptian midwives. Remember them? What did they do? They saved the Israelite babies from being drowned because they had awe, respect for the Lord. When Israel left Egypt, it says there was a mixed multitude. So that means perhaps it wasn't just Israel, but maybe some others from the nation of Egypt applied the blood of the lamb on their doors, and then they were redeemed, they were saved. In the Messianic age, both Israel and Egypt will know the Lord. Both Jew and Gentile will experience the redemption of God. And guess what? That age is upon us. That is part of the kingdom of God. The question is, how are we moving toward being like God? Are we using others for personal gain? Are we trying to control the situation? Or are we moving toward blessing others? Are we cultivating a love for the nations and a love for the Jewish people, even as Hashem ingathers and shepherds these two groups? I'd like to close with one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which points to how the Messiah brings this idea to fullness. Let's read it together, uh, if you'd like, from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Ruach, if there is any mercy and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit with one purpose. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but with humility, consider others as more important than yourselves, looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Messiah Yeshua, who, though existing in the form of God, did not consider being equal to God a thing to be grasped. There's a reason that Paul uses that word, for grasped, right? because it's that grasping of power. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, becoming the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue profess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Amen, right? Yeah, it's good. God's word is so good. Avinu, our Father, we thank you for the, these two paths that are before us, Lord. And we ask for your help by your Ruach HaKodesh. Inspire us, empower us to take the path of humility, to, to let go of the illusion of control and trying to be little gods and let us ref, re, rather reflect your character, reflect your goodness, reflect your blessing on others to Israel and to the nations, Lord, um, that they will know we are your followers by our love and that you will be glorified and that you will draw, you will ingather Israel to yourself through Yeshua the Messiah and you will ingather Egypt, that is all nations, to yourself through Yeshua the Messiah and that you will involve us in that process, Lord. We say, Hineni, we say, here I am. We are willing to partner with you, Lord, for the redemption and for the fullness of your kingdom on earth because you are a good father and a good king to us. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.